Great. Well, guys, today's topic is the topic of salvation. There's going to be a few moments in here while I'll pause for a bit, a uh, little bit for dramatic effect. Because if you want to sound smart, the topic today, if, if you really want the, the smart word, is soteriology. Uh, in fact, if you see the note sheet, I wrote it out there for you. If you're like, how do I spell that? Already as you're taking notes. But soteriology, uh, remember like with theology, the ology, the O-L-O-G-Y ending means the study of something. Uh, so theology is the study of God. Soteriology is the study of salvation. Uh, that's essentially what, even as you dove into your readings this week, that's what you are giving yourself to, is the study of salvation. Uh, so that's soteriology. Uh, I'm curious, and I just want to get us all used to this technology. I want to get us chiming in. Um, as you did your readings this week, uh, would a couple of you be willing to share just some major takeaways? Uh, maybe one per person, get a couple of people to share. I like that it shares the different views because I'm the type of person that, I mean, I know my view and I know it pretty well, I'd say, but I don't know others. So like when I want to, or I have that moment where I do kind of need to defend my faith, yeah. I can't go further than what I know. So I appreciate that, that it has like the what is it, the reformed view and the non-reformed view and yep. stuff like that. Yep, awesome. What's your church background, Audrey? Um, I'm from a non-denominational church is what they identify as, mm -hmm. but it's a very similar like service um, okay. as can So, I mean, evangelical free is also what they consider yep. themselves. Okay, very cool, very cool. Yeah. Anybody else? A major takeaway. Cody, I remember years ago overhearing a conversation about me. Um, the guy said, uh, it was actually a coworker of mine years ago. He said, yeah, I'm a Christian, but that Adam guy is like one of those born again Christians. And uh, Sproul nails it. He says, there's no such thing as a yeah. not born again Christian. Oh, yeah. But for how, how long was that like common language where you had to almost identify as that so people knew that you were really serious about being oh, a, a Christian? I don't, I don't even know. I mean, it was, I, if I could follow it, somebody should write a book on this. It'd be, it'd be like maybe the Babylon Bee that could put it together. But there, there was like <laughs> yes. the born again Christian phase. Uh, the evangelical Christian phase meant something too. And right. then like uh, the most recent language I feel like I hear more often is when people, uh, it's not just that you're a Christian, you're a Christ follower. You know, try, I'm trying to, because you're trying to add like that extra nails to it <laughs> to give it something. But Yeah. Trying to clarify and language is always changing because it uh, ties itself with political whatever. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's helpful. I was curious if anybody else was surprised as much as I, and I guess I, I never lose the awe of this, but I was surprised in, in reading these chapters, how little it actually talked about us and like what we do. Like, as you read these chapters, like it, it was so focused on God, what God did. And it had very little to do with me other than, and I love this. If you guys know Tom Nesbitt at, at all, um, but Cornerstone, which is where I was at previous to here. Uh, Tom is kind of the patriarch, you know, this grandfather for everybody. Uh, 
you know, Tom nailed this all the time where he said, the only thing I contribute to my salvation is my sin. And I just felt that again and again in reading these chapters that it's, it's true. Like I contribute so little to this and this is just such a work of God. And I think that's one of the things that RC does so well and did so well in his ministry over the course of his life is continue to highlight how God is the one who is merciful. God is the one who brings about this incredible reality for us. And, uh, and I, I think that was like a key thing for us to take away. And so I would ask this question, you know, as we get started today, like if all I contribute to my salvation is essentially my sin, uh, then what should these things do? You know, as, as we study out uh, salvation and, and we look at these passages that we're gonna look at today, what should be our response? What are we to do? Um, guys, I, I just want three words essentially to be on your mind from the beginning. Number one, um, comforted. I want you to be comforted by the things that we're going to look at today. Number two, uh, worship. I want you to be inspired to worship today uh, as we look at who God is and what he's done for us. Um, and then number three, I, I want us to be bold. Um, guys, I, as I pour over these things. And every time I, I, I continue to ponder them in a fresh way, I'm always stirred with a, a refreshed vigor for evangelism, for sharing the gospel, which can sometimes be like the surprise ending of this whole conversation. Well, you believe that people are elect, so why would you be bold for evangelism? It's like, nah, let me tell you why. And, and we'll get into that today. Um, I think there is responses for us, but guys, I do think it's, it's right for us as we walk into this conversation on salvation to really ponder in a fresh way how God accomplished this and labors for this. And so, guys, um, I'd love to pray for us, and then we're going to jump on in. And essentially what we're going to do is look at four foundational passages that speak into our topic today. They're actually passages that were all over our readings. And we're just going to look at that passage and kind of go, what does this passage say regarding salvation? And then I'll pack it together and I'll add some more content. We'll kind of walk through those over the course of our hour together. So, yeah, let me pray for us. So. Father, thank you so much for this morning, for technology that allows us to uh, sit in our sweatpants and yet still engage. Lord, um, what a gift this is to be able to gather, to open your word together and to be encouraged. Lord, I pray that today we would be comforted. Um, God, that you would be worshipped, that you'd be glorified in our time, and that, God, then you would make us bold in sharing your name with those around us. Uh, God, thank you for the truths of these scriptures that we're about to unpack. Thank you for how they cut so deep. And, uh, God, thank you, because I need them today, Lord. I think the other reason we need to, to talk about these things is I'm just hardwired to forget how sinful I am, to think that this is unjust, or that's not right, or that's not fair, and yet... Um, God, you are sovereign, you are good, uh, and your gifts are good. And so I need to be reminded of them once again. We need to be reminded of them once again. So we love you. Thank you for this time. Amen. All right. If uh, you've got Bibles with you, you want to pull these out. If not, you can even just cheat and use the note sheet. I've, I've already sent these passages to you. Um, uh, the first passage I want to look at, though, is Romans 3 verses 21 through 26. So Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. I'd love for somebody to be bold enough to read for us this morning. So anybody willing to read Romans 3, 21 through 26? I will. I'm just not there yet. <laughs> awesome. 
Thank you. Okay. 321 through 26. Yep, that's it, Katie. Thank you. Okay. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's see, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Am I saying that right? Yep. <laughs> by yep, right. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine um, forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Awesome. Thank you for reading that. Mm -hmm. uh, so this question is for everybody now. What does this passage say regarding salvation? I think it's a free gift from, free, free gift from God. Yeah. Yep. It's a free gift from God. What else? I got a phone number here that's chiming in. I'll have sin and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And who is this that was just speaking? Vicki Reed. Awesome. Vicki, thank you. All I got is a phone number here. So I was just wanting to know who I was yeah. talking to. Okay, awesome. Thank you. All, right, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Anything else that this passage says about salvation? Justified by his grace. Or justified by his grace. Very cool. Yeah, those are some great observations. Uh, you know, remember when, when we walked to that chapter on salvation, uh, R.C. Sproul made a very strong statement that's a, that's a good summary statement of salvation, that we are saved, that salvation is of God and is from God, right? That it's God's wrath that we're being saved from, and God is the one who saves us. So salvation is of God and from God. And not from God, like receiving a gift, like it's from his wrath, right? It is God who saves us from the wrath of God. Uh, that's, a, that's a summary kind of, of, of what salvation is, right? Uh, some key words. Let me just walk through this passage just a little bit. And I'll, I'll pull out some key words for you. When we talk about the word like righteousness, and I'm going to use the CSV. So Katie, you got to help me out because I think you had ESV. Uh, it says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Uh, righteousness, if you want to break that word down, that N-E-S-S -S ending, ness, when you add that to any word, essentially means like the state of something, right? You say uh, happiness, it's the state of being happy, right? So N-E-S-S -S means the state of something. Serena, as you're looking at me on the screen, I all of a sudden pause and go, you're the English teacher, maybe uh, you could help us out. <laughs> I got really insecure when I all of a sudden saw you look up. Uh, so. Let me know if I'm wrong. So N-E-S-S means the state of something, uh, but it's righteousness. So there's the E-O-U-S before that. Okay. So E-O-U-S means to be full of something. Like if I say that somebody is courageous, uh, they're full of courage. Um, so when you're talking about righteous, it's a person who is full of right. And when you add the N-E-S-S, it's the state of being full of right. Like God's righteousness, God is in this eternal state of being fully right and good. Now our righteousness from God has been revealed, this righteousness now that actually can become ours. 
which is, is but it's that state of being fully right. And this righteousness is available to all by faith. And as verse 23 highlights, we all need it. And I just continue to walk through this passage. They're all justified freely. I think that's a key phrase, right? It's not given begrudgingly. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption. A uh, key word there in verse 24 kind of points back to the Old Testament. Think of like the Passover lamb that as the lamb was slaughtered and the blood was put above the door frames of the houses in Egypt and, you know, the angel of death passed over certain houses, uh, that lamb purchased the redemption of that household. It's, it's the same picture there, right, that Jesus bought our redemption. Verse 25, God presented him as a propitiation. That was the word, Katie. You got it right. So propitiation. Uh, CSB uses the phrase atoning sacrifice. If you're looking for a definition of propitiation, this is what I use because it's not a common English word for us, but it's, it's hard to like fully encapsulate what Jesus did for us. Um, so so here's, here's what propitiation means. Propitiation is a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. And the reason that this is important is, is like when it comes to Jesus saving us, it, you got to think of it this way. Like, like if, if there's a truck that's speeding down the road at you, that is, that is the wrath of God, it, it is coming towards you. Um, it's not that Jesus just jumped in front of you, right? It, it's, like, it's like you're standing here and Jesus is standing about 20 feet to your right. And that truck has got to pick one of the two of you. And Jesus is over there screaming, hit me hit me with it, and the, the, the truck veers over and just smokes Jesus. And the, the beauty of a wrath-absorbing sacrifice is that actually what it, what it does is it's not like God unloads his wrath on Jesus, but is still like fuming mad at the end of it, right? If any of you are, are parents, right, and you've, you've ever disciplined your child, you know, you, you may discipline them, but still at the end of it, still be pretty angry, uh, sometimes we can think of God in that way. Yeah, he poured out his wrath on Jesus, but he's probably still mad. It's like, no, no, you don't understand. Like Jesus was a propitiation. He was a, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice that he took the full brunt of it, that there's none left. In fact, it was such a good sacrifice that it took on all of God's wrath so that all that God has left in him is gracious thoughts toward us. It actually takes the wrath and flips it towards delight. Do you, you understand what I mean? Like, and we don't have, like, like when you talk about just a sacrifice, it only seems to cover part of that, right? Oh, that, that God took, that Jesus took on the punishment, but it's, it's wrath absorbing so that all that God has left in him is then delight toward those who are once under his wrath. It's, it's a difference, right? So propitiation, wrath absorbing sacrifice. All that God has left now is, is delight in us. It was fully sufficient. Uh, and I love that last verse. There's more in this passage. Did somebody want to speak something? Nope. Okay. Sorry. I heard a voice. Might have been in my own head. Uh, the last thing I just want to hit in this, this, this passage here. Uh, is that last verse there, verse 26. Again, if you've got a Bible out or if you've got those notes, like try to highlight this stuff and circle this for free, like future study. Um, 
this is this is beautiful. I love actually how the ESV words this, right? So that he might be just and the justifier. Or CSB says that he might be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Does anybody know what that verse is trying to communicate? And it said that he might be just and the justifier. You know what's going on there? I think the big conundrum is, okay, so God is now looking at a sinner. What's he going to do? Is he going to choose justice? And so he's going to bring rightful judgment on that person. But what about mercy? I thought God is also loving. So will God choose justice and forsake mercy? Or you go the other way, God's looking at this sinner and he goes, well, maybe God will choose love and mercy, but forsake justice. What will God do? Like in our minds, that, that seems like an, like a, an unsolvable conundrum. <laughs> how, do you, how, do you, how do you, when you got a sinner in front of you, how do you, you got to pick one. You're going to be just, you're going to be loving. And actually what we see here in this passage is that God, through what he did with Jesus, was able to do both. So as to be just, the punishment was still poured out. The wrath of God was still poured out. Um, but God was also able to, be just and also be the justifier in the same act. Does that make sense? Just and justifier. He's both just full of justice and full of mercy at the same time. I think uh, the story that brings us together, some of you have done theology of the gospel is the story of the merciful king. How many of you, when I say the story of the merciful king, know what I'm talking about? Can you throw your hand up? Wow. Okay. This is great. I'll unpack this. Again, guys, if you have notes, um, I was just told by Shelly that maybe they're not there. I'll repost them. Did they pop up this time? Sorry. I must have, I posted them before you all logged on. I thought they would just be waiting for you when they got here. Okay. My apologies. Thank you, Shelly. Things that we learned. So now you can see how to spell soteriology. And now you can see the first passage that we're walking through. But you can see in there, uh, I put it uh, as a link. I think it's on the bottom of the first page, a link to the larger story, the story of the merciful king. Um, I'll essentially summarize the story for you, but I would encourage you to read this at some point today. Did you all find it? It's the bottom of the first, first page. The story of the merciful king goes something like this. It's meant to kind of unpack this together. Uh, you know, there was once this king, and he, he ruled over a kingdom where everything was, was perfect. And one day, to everybody's surprise, even the king's surprise, uh, he was informed by one of his servants that somebody had been stealing from his treasury. The king is shocked by this. He'd never heard of anything like this ever happening in his kingdom. And so everybody was curious how the king was going to respond. And he said, okay, we'll find this person. And when you find them, we'll give them 10 lashes. And so the servant goes out and they continue to investigate, trying to figure out who did this. And a day goes by or so, and the servant comes back and he says, king, I'm, I'm sorry to report, but actually this thief stole from you again. And the king is now like, blown away like <laughs> again uh we'd never heard of this even happening before once and now now again 
And, he's, and now he, he says, okay, well then find this person. We'll give them 20 lashes. And everybody's down like, like on edge. Like, holy cow, this is a big deal. And nothing like this ever happened before. So another couple of days go by. And again, the thief come, or the, the servant comes in again and says, you know, my Lord, the thief came back and stole from you once again. So the king says, okay, this time 30 lashes. And then it happens again. He says, this time we, we will lash them to the point of death. And everybody in the kingdom is just shocked by this scene that's unfolded. So again, the thief, the, the servant comes back in. He says, my Lord, we, we found the thief. The king said, bring that thief before me to receive their punishment. And all of a sudden the doors open up in the back of the room and everybody begins to gasp as in walks the thief that's been arrested. And the thief is the king's very own mother frail in her age and caught red-handed and they bring her up before the king and everybody's beginning to wonder now well what will he do i mean will the king really carry out his punishment on his own mother i mean he said to lash the thief until death that was his his order that he that he said that everybody knows so will he choose justice but it's his mother how can he do that to his his mother so will he then choose to be loving and then totally you know, forget about this whole thing? And, and what will the king do? And so in an act that surprises everyone, the king has her tied to the post and says out loud, administer the punishment. And as the whip's going back and about to, to lay in the first blow on his mother's back, he screams out, says, halt comes down, wraps his own big frame around hers, takes off his, 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 uh, his crown, his royal robe, wraps his big frame around hers and says, administer the lashes until the punishment's carried out. And he's killed in her place. It's a story that's trying to highlight for us like the beauty of how God is both just and the justifier, how he is both righteous, he's full of right, and that he carries out absolute justice, but at the same time is also the one who declares righteous. You see how those two things come together in that story? So you can read that story in greater detail, but that's one I would encourage you, those who are parents, share that with your kids or grandparents, share that with your grandkids. It's a beautiful story. Uh, that, that helps people to see God's absolute goodness in the midst of all this. But, so I think that's kind of the first passage is we want to talk about salvation, that salvation, it, it is God who is the one that is saving us from the wrath of God. That's kind of the first big thing we want to take away from this discussion on salvation or soteriology. Uh, I want to look at now the second passage of our, of our day uh, can we all go to Ephesians 1? We'll look at verses 3 through 6. And now that you all have it in the note sheet, uh, if somebody wants to just pull it from there, you can, you can read for us. But can somebody read this passage for us? No. Okay. <laughs> I can continue to hear you guys there. Somebody else want to read for us, though? I can do it. Thank you. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, 
to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Awesome. Thank you, Adam. Awesome. Guys, what does that passage say about salvation? That he chose us. That he chose us, right? The concept yeah. of, of predestination seems in there. What else? That he chose us, uh, <laughs> verse 6 says, to the, pleasure, to the praise of his glorious grace. So he chose us so that we could worship him. Right. Yeah, this should be one of those things that inspires us to worship is, is, is reflected on the truth of this passage, right? This is why God did what he did was so that we would worship him. Right. Guys, anything else? Give me, give me maybe one more kind of key takeaway from this text. I mean, it just keeps saying in him, in, in Christ, in almost every sentence. So it's in Jesus and clearly not by anything of our works. Absolutely. 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 Thank you. Right. That first part of it there, right. In verse four, he chose us in him, highlighting what you just said, Audrey, before the foundation of the world. Let me just walk through a kind of some keynotes I, I took from this. I want to pass on to you, right. That he chose us in him before the foundation of the world or before there was a single star put in the sky. God chose the elect. He chose people on this phone call to know him and have relationship with him. That is mind blowing. He predestined us. So when it comes to predestination, there's a couple like uh, helpful words to know, cause you're going to hear these thrown around a lot. Uh, words like uh, predestination uh, and election are not synonyms. Okay. Maybe you've heard those words used a lot. Very, they're very similar, but they're not exactly synonyms. Even another word uh, that Millard Erickson will use is like foreordination. Uh, I've never used that word before. So I've read it and it makes me feel smart that I can say it. But, uh, but when you hear the word predestination, think this, like it's a little bit more of a broad word. Predestination speaks to kind of God's sovereign will over all things, uh, particularly over uh some people receiving eternal life and eternal death. That's predestination. Election is God's choosing of some people for eternal life. It's, it's more narrow. Um, it's helpful to know that those words, there's some slight differences. But I love how R.C. Sproul highlights this, you know, that, that like every church, virtually every church, has a position on predestination uh, because it's unavoidable. Uh, it's not like some people believe in predestination, some don't. Like, Every church has to deal with it because it's in the Bible. It's clear. It's right here in this text. The question is, uh, what exactly do they view in regards to predestination? And guys, here's what's kind of funny. I don't know if anybody else would own this. Um, when he starts getting into the two, the two camps, you know, that there's the Reformed camp, which that language all kind of goes back to like Dutch Reformed world and a lot of this theology kind of coming from that circle, uh, the Reformed world versus non-reformed or the the prescient view uh i i unknowingly uh though believed in the sovereignty of god and all that i was a proponent of the prescient view for a number of years uh i just didn't know it uh anybody else when you began reading through those two views are like yeah i actually uh I, i think i've said that a lot you know like well i think i think when it comes to uh predestination and the elect of of people um 
that it's all because like God knows those who are going to choose him. And so that's how he decides, you know, anybody like been a proponent of that viewpoint at some point in your life? That, that was me for a number of years. <laughs> and, it, and it was actually like a few years into my, my time on Cornerstone that somebody like highlighted for me like, hey, actually, I don't believe that that's true. And we began to un- unpack it. Uh, I'll slow down a bit and, and kind of unpack these two things, right? You have the non-reformed view, that the prescient view that believes that God chooses people on the basis of his foreknowledge of them choosing him, right? So the way that people get saved and the way that God predestines them to be saved is God can see into the future and knows those who are going to choose him, and so he saves those people. That's the prescient view of uh, predestination. Uh, Carl, I, b- I believe our Methodist background, that would be their viewpoint. That's correct. I was trying to get unmuted there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I grew up with, with that as a strong um, um, strong belief. And I actually came to question it before becoming Baptist. So yeah. uh, I, I think Debbie and I both are, would consider ourselves Calvinists. Yeah. So what, what for you was the the point that, that kind of caused you to change your thinking or to differ with that belief? It, it, it was the, well, I'm still, um, I, I have a friend that kind of laughs at me because I talk about sitting on the fence and leaning one way and then I kind of flop back the other way a little yeah. bit. Um, um, I've been, I actually started uh, Sproul's, Sproul's book, uh, Chosen by God. I've started it like three times now, but uh, I, I think that's what the scriptures bear. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's kind of been the deciding thing for me. And and, and being, um, you know, listening to some speakers, uh, MacArthur, MacArthur, uh, and Washer and Sprawl, uh, yeah. I, I guess I've, that's kind of gotten beaten into me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think, guys, I'll, I'll highlight two things for you that have caused me to go. This is why I believe the reformed view, right? That God doesn't predestined those to be saved who he knows will eventually choose him. I I believe that God chooses people based on his sovereign pleasure. Uh, That they didn't choose him. It wasn't they were going to choose him. He just chose them on his sovereign pleasure. One of the reasons I believe that is because of verse five. Go back to verse five here. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to, not his knowledge that they would eventually choose him, according to his good pleasure. So I look at that and I go, that, that is purely of God. The second reason that I, I hold to this view, uh, it's actually, I think Charles Spurgeon is the one who puts this really well. In fact, it was so good. I just took this quote and just put it into the note sheet as well because I thought, this will save you from uh, trying to find this later. But I, I, think, I think for me, the doctrine of total depravity is linked to my convictions regarding predestination here. Uh, and this is what Charles Spurgeon speaks into. He says, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else. He never would have chosen me afterwards, and he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, 
for I never could find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I am forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. That, that for me kind of sums up like personally my, my, my sense of it because knowing as I continue to, to read scriptures about the extent of just the depravity of my own sinful heart, there was no choice that I was ever going to make for God left to my own devices. And I think Sproul does a great job unpacking that, making that crystal clear that there's nobody who would ever choose God of their own free will without God sovereignly intervening and bringing about that work. Um, and so I left that, that quote in there. I think one thing, guys, this has actually helped me to do is, uh, you know, with my own God story, and maybe you can like go back through your own God story and like interpret it through some new lenses. Um, I grew up going to church. Uh, I wouldn't describe it as a very strong church uh, or even a gospel preaching church. It was, it was okay. There was people there who genuinely loved me and genuinely loved God. If I grew up going to church and sitting there in the pews every Sunday, um, to my own knowledge, I don't remember hearing the gospel. Uh, it was when I was about 15 years old that I had a friend as we were just driving around in his Geo Metro, uh, which is a beautiful car, 55 miles to the gallon, uh, that I remember hearing and understanding the gospel for the first time. And for a number of years, guys, when I would share my own God story, I would bash on my church that I grew up in and would blame them for having never shared the gospel with me and, and just put them on full blast. And actually, one of the things I've, I've had to, to, to tweak over the years as I've, as I've come to understand this, this doctrine more, is like, I, I don't know if it's necessarily fair because I also, guys, I, I don't know. Um, maybe they didn't share the gospel. Maybe they did. I don't even know if I had ears or a heart to hear it or receive it. And I think we can sometimes do that with our own God stories is just blast those around us for their failure to speak truth into our lives. And it's like, actually, maybe, maybe God had just not yet moved to open my ears to hear the gospel because there was something different. I mean, it, it was like when I heard it, it was like for the first time and it, it hit my soul and overwhelmed me. Uh, and so I think this is just one of the ways that as I've on, like, grown to understand these truths, it's, it's caused me to just change the way that I'll even share my own God story. You know, that I'll start first with um, not blasting the church I grew up in or pointing at the, the failure of my parents. I'll just point to uh, the, the sovereign reality of God bringing his truth when I was 15 and, and, and it just overwhelming me. Uh, by his work in my life. Uh, I've got some, some drawings behind me here on the whiteboard. I, I want to unpack something. I, I think one thing that can come up when you start talking about election and, and predestination is, is there can be this uh, question regarding fairness, right? Like that's not fair that God did that. Um, I think something that, that's helpful for me to understand, I'll, I'll try to like balance these two things at once. When you're talking about fairness, this is often what we're talking about. I got the word justice here, right? That really there's only two camps, right? That, that something is either just or it's unjust, right? Justice is when we get what we deserve. 
injustice is what we don't get what we deserve, right? So when you start talking about fairness, you go, well, God, that's not fair that you would choose some and not choose others, right? So again, justice is when we get what we deserve and injustice is when we don't get what we deserve. We often think through these two categories and I think we can feel like we're in a little bit of a conundrum. Okay, so is God being unjust or unjust in doing what he's, he's doing? And I think what's helpful for us to understand is that actually God creates this third category that's incredibly beautiful called mercy. In fact, you can now draw three circles here around all of these. God never operates in this circle ever. God is never unjust in anything that he does. It's contrary to who he is. God only operates in these two worlds, justice and mercy. Justice is when we get what we deserve. Mercy is when we get what we don't deserve. And there's no injustice in that, right? It's not that we deserved something and then didn't get it. You get what you deserve, or you get what you don't deserve. And so for us, I think it's important for us when we start talking about fairness, that we start from the place of what was actually fair. <laughs> if we all got what we deserved, what is justice in the situation? It's that no one is elected. But God in his mercy chose some. And if you want to get into the why he chose me or Adam or whatever, and why he didn't choose that person, or why God chose this many people instead of this many people, that's where you get into the Romans 9 stuff of, and it, God is sovereign, he's good, he's all-knowing. And in his infinite wisdom, chose this route because it brought him the greatest amount of glory. That's the reality of that. But I think these circles, like it's been helpful for me to kind of understand these categories and to continue to highlight again and again that God only operates in these two worlds, justice and mercy. There's nothing unjust or unjust in what God does. R.C. Sproul says this, this is actually, uh, this isn't in, in the book that you guys read. He wrote another book I'd recommend entitled uh, Everyone's a Theologian. It's essentially the same book that you're reading. It's just instead of having like one and a half page per chapter, it's like three pages per chapter. So it was like the cheat sheet for me. I'm like, oh, let's, I'll just read that book and it'll make me sound a little bit smarter. I can fill in some gaps. But uh, he wrote this in regards to this. He says, we often believe that if God were really good, he would give us a better life in some way. But if we think that God owes us something, we are actually thinking about justice because grace is never owed. God is not obligated to give mercy to anyone. God, when God behaves in a favorable manner toward us, even though we have no claim to it by our merit, this is always grace. So... Pack, wrap up that passage. Let's go to another one. Uh, uh, got two more passages we want to get through. We got 15 minutes. So uh, this one's a little bit shorter. Let's go to Romans 8, verse 30. At some point here, I'll slow down and create space for questions if you got it. But let's go Romans 8, verse 30. This is what Sproul referred to as the golden chain of salvation. 
also known as the order of salvation in reform circles. But we want to read that one verse for us. I can. Yep. Thank you. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Awesome. Awesome. <clears throat> Guys, real quick, uh, in your readings, this, this passage was highlighted. But is there anything, as you look at this verse, that you'd say, um, yeah, this is what this verse says regarding salvation? Anything I think like out? you said a couple times already, it's like, you know, we do nothing in this equation. Like we are the ones who are being predestined. We are the ones who are being called, being justified, being glorified. Like we don't give any of it, but instead it's God doing all of these things. Mm. Absolutely. Anything else? Because I, I, I want to comfort you a bit with this passage. Um, again, Sproul is the one that, that highlighted this, right? It's kind of assumed within this text, though not explicitly stated, that uh, when he's walking through this, like, look at the certainty of this phrase. It's not that some will be predestined and then some will be called and some will make it through to the end, but it's like everyone, everyone that God predestined will be called, will be justified, will be glorified. There's certainty here, right? This is what Paul is speaking to when he's talking to the Philippians, right? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, right? Because his sovereign purposes in our lives can't be thwarted. And you can get into the whole, like, where does free will fit in that and, and all that? And, and I think uh, it was Millard Erickson that kind of spoke into that. He's like, it's not so much that, that, we must do this because God has forced it upon us, but that we will do it because God has made it so appealing, right? It's a it's slight nuance changes and things like that, but, but there's just certainty as you read this, this verse that God will accomplish what he's begun, what he set into motion before the foundation of the world, right? God is going to accomplish this. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Uh, a couple of more words, if, if you want some definitions. Uh, these, are, again, aren't meant to sound just smart. These are really helpful words for you to know. Um, there's a word, monergism. I think if I spell it out, it's M-O-N-E-R-G-I-S-M. M-O-N-E-R-G-I-S-M. Monergism and synergism. Uh, Anybody know what synergism means? Those of you that are like leader in me, educators, Shelly or Katie. You want me to unmute you? If I can unmute I, I, you. I got it. Sorry. Yeah, what, what's, what's synergism? When everybody works together for the common good. Right. It's a working together. So then what would yeah. monogism be? You could guess. I just working by yourself. Yeah, it's it's one working, right? Um, it's helpful to know these these words and distinctions, especially as you, as you go through this list, because um, all of these things that we're talking about here in Romans eight thirty is monogism. God does this. God predestines. He calls. He justifies. He glorifies. My salvation, my justification, 
my regeneration and new birth, those are all things accomplished solely by God. I didn't do anything. It's monogism. God did it. And his sovereign pleasure, he did it. And he acted upon a sinner who was so lost that had he not done that, I would have never chosen him for myself. That was how messed up I am. Right? Synergism. We start talking about synergism, you know, because you're going to go, well, at what part in here do like, I have a role to play at all? I, I would highlight then the process of sanctification. That's an example of synergism, right? That God has uh, enacted in me and enabled me to now desire him, to long for him, to actually delight in him and love him. And I now work hard, right? That's, that's Paul when he's writing to the Philippians. What is that? Philippians 2.12, right? That I work hard and I work out my salvation with fear and trembling because God has done that work in me. And, and this process of sanctification that is over the course of my life is me working out this salvation in real life form. Right? So sanctification, the process of being made holy over the course of my life is, a, is an aspect of synergism, right? By my free will, my own desires, I'm, I'm pressing into God and letting him conform me into his image. But that takes effort. That takes work. Right? But it's good to know kind of these, these different phrases. Right? But this is a passage that's key. They call this the, the golden chain of salvation. At least that's what Sproul uses it as, but I'm assuming others do as well. Let me look at one more passage here. That's three of, of the four. Let's go to the fourth one. Uh, I want to look at 1 John 2, verse 19. We're going to talk a little bit here about assurance of salvation and saving faith. And uh, what do we do with those who fall away? How do we think about that? So somebody want to read for us 1 John chapter 2, verse 19? Sure, I can grab it. Thank you, Adam. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. Perfect. Thank you, Adam. Uh, so, guys, I'm, I'm going to phrase this question in regard to this passage a little bit different than the ones before. Um, I told you a bit of, of my story and how I came to know Christ. I was 15 years old. At the same time that I came to know Christ, um, one of my really good friends, childhood friends, a kid named Tony, uh, also prayed the prayer and gave his life to Christ. Uh, over the course of the next year, uh, Tony experienced two awful tragedies. I mean, the type of stuff that... A 16-year-old should never experience once, and he experienced it twice uh, in the same year. And within the span of that year, uh, began the year having prayed the prayer and gave his life to Christ, and by the end of the year, um, was no longer in fellowship, no longer a part of our Bible study, no longer wanted anything to do with Jesus, and to this day has continued to say, doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. Um, Looking at Tony's story, and guys, I know when I share Tony's story, like you know of people like Tony, okay? Uh, how are we to understand Tony's story 
based on what we've read and even like a passage like this? I think um, it's just meant to show that everybody that we think that is following Christ is not necessarily following Christ Mm -hmm. and that uh, a life experience like that and you watching him um, walk away was just to make it plain to you that he didn't actually Mm -hmm. trust Jesus. Yeah. But what would you say, like, but he, but he prayed the prayer, right? I mean, I throw that question at you, but Tony prayed the prayer, so what does that mean? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that he, um, I don't know. Um, (laughs) And I'm not just trying to put you on the spot, Megan. I think this is part of like, you know, the evangelical world that we live in. Uh, there's so much stock often put in praying that prayer. And I often have a lot of parents that I'm interacting with that their child goes wayward and they're, they're just distraught. They go, gosh, but when they were six, you know, they prayed this prayer. So I, they're going to be fine. I just, they just need to ride out these waves. And, and, and guys, I don't get in the spot of trying to decide whether they're saved or not saved. I'm not trying to do that but I try to highlight the importance of like, but what is the fruit of their life now? Let's not get into a debate over the sincerity of that moment or not, or even into the future. Like, I don't know guys, if that seed that was planted in Tony's life, if it'll eventually bear fruit, I hope so. You know, I, I don't know. But if I look at his life now, which a passage like this would kind of point out for us, like, you can tell, like, they went out from us and they didn't belong to us. For If they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. You should have been able to see it in their life that this was genuine and, and real. But their going out from us made it clear that they never belonged to us. That's what Hebrews 6 is trying to articulate as well, right? That, that these people that appeared to be Christians, that appeared to have all these experiences, that, that, that appeared, it, it seems so genuine. I mean... Tony and I had all of the same experiences at the beginning and all of the first markers of faith. But that's why the parable of the four soils is so helpful. Tony and I, the seed fell in soil and a plant sprouted up and it it looked great. But whether you want to say that Tony was choked out by the worries of this world or that it was the the shallow soil where there wasn't enough root, I, I don't know. And guys, the reality too is, and I, I don't, I don't want to say this too boldly um, and unsettle you, but my life isn't over either. And I could be the, the, the seed in the third soil. It's the importance of continuing to deal with the weeds that can grow up in life, the worries of this world and unconfessed sin and those things that grow up along with the plant. And if I live in a spot where I'm not confessing sin and continue to pursue God and the holiness that he calls me to, it could choke me out and make me unfruitful, you know? And so, um, you know, the Christian life is to be marked by fruit. We should be able to, to see the reality of that person's faith lived out. I'll throw one last thing uh, in, in front of you that I think will be helpful um, this is just trying to kind of clarify this last point. Uh, Sproul actually talks about this in his other book, uh, Everyone's a Theologian, but he compares the Protestant view of faith and works with the Roman Catholic view. And I found this to be really helpful uh, over the years. 
he'd say this, that the, the Roman Catholic view, and if anyone on this call is a, is a former Catholic, you'll, you'll know this to be true. Uh, their view is this, that faith plus works equals salvation. Right, you see how this, this plays out? Faith plus works equals salvation. So yeah, it's a combination of faith in Jesus Christ plus acts of penance, the Hail Marys, it's confession, it's the Eucharist, it's, it's all these things that if you combine faith with those works, it equals salvation. I want to contrast that with what we believe and we preach at Camdale Church, which is the, the Protestant view, which is not simply faith equals salvation, right? And, and I, I know it's a, it's a dramatic statement, but just let me un unpack this, because it keeps all the same elements, but faith equals salvation plus works. As Sproul would say, right, uh, salvation is in Christ alone by faith alone, but faith alone and Christ alone is, is never alone. That type of living faith is never alone. That's what James will continue to confront us with. We're going to get into that again today, that this is the marker of living faith, right? Saving faith. It's not just faith equals salvation. You can't just walk around and go, oh, of course I'm going to heaven because I, I, just, I just believe. And I go, that's, that's true. But is there the evidences of that fruit in your life, the markers of the Holy Spirit's work in your life that are, that are evident? Uh, and so I think that those are helpful uh, kind of contrasting viewpoints that help us see, like, again, what we believe to affirm what we preach and teach. So. So guys, those are four foundational passages, I think, when you're talking about salvation um, that I think are key for us to understand, to be able to go to our Bibles and, and pull out to, to articulate to others. Uh, there's a lot of things that we could have talked about today. I'm, I'm already out of time. Um, I'd encourage you guys, if you, if you have any questions, let me just give you my email address and you can contact me directly if you want to talk about anything specifically. Uh, my email is c m so c m then c l i n e for cody michael klein c m klein at gmail.com i can follow up with any questions you've got from today's discussions as a class so um because as, as i told you before as we started this class my goal is that as we talk about these things you'll have three responses number one that you'll be comforted right that god who began this work will bring it about to completion god as he he has been about this work since the foundations of the world number two let it inspire you to worship of him um that this is in god's sovereign good pleasure that he enacted this plan and three uh guys let it embolden you to share the gospel Election doesn't cause me to shrink back and not share the gospel because I think that people will just be fine without it. 
it emboldens me to share the gospel because I know that some will receive it. I'm not going to be rejected by everybody. And that's a great thing to, to know in a lot of really hard circumstances. It's like, I know how this works, that, that there are some, though, that will. God has promised that they're there. And God has done that work and will do that work. And so I just need to be faithful. And so it emboldens me to share the gospel. As next week, uh, April 5th, uh, you're talking about the church. And I just want to make sure you know this. You're talking about the church next week. I think we're using Zoom moving forward for the rest of this class. You only got four chapters next week, 76, 77, 78, and 79. So uh, chapter 76 through 79 in the book, talk about the church. So I won't be with you next week. Hopefully you'll enjoy it. So see you guys. Thanks for joining us today.